Let's turn our attention then to the book of Mark this morning, if we could, in Mark chapter number 14, and we continue our journey to the cross, and the way we've set this journey up here is that we've, we're going to be coming into Resurrection Sunday here in just a few weeks, and it's hard to believe that we're already at Easter, but we are, and uh, we'll be celebrating Easter together and the resurrection of our Lord, and so as we get to that, we, we will wrap up the story of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and then maybe one more message to wrap up the book of Mark. And we'll be done with this series. And I've enjoyed going through this uh, series. And we've been doing this for the last two years. And just a little over two years now, we started the series in Mark. And um, we've taken some pauses. And we've come back and relaunched it again. And But we're coming to the end of this journey through the book of Mark. And it's always an encouragement to me when you can get to the end of a book. However, I do kind of feel, I, I said this the other day, I feel like when I come to the end of a good book, it's like saying goodbye to a good friend. And you have to just kind of walk away and it's over with now. But the one thing about the scripture is that we never are done reading it. We're coming back to it time and time and time again. And that's a, and, it, and by the way, you learn something every time you come back to it. And so here we're going through this. We'll end our series through Mark in just a couple of weeks. And so Jesus is journeying to the cross. We've seen him in the Garden of Gethsemane last week. And now we pick up with his arrest. And he's going to be let off into the trial and I'm going to let you remain seated this morning. We've had you up and down a few times already, and so we'll spare your knees for a minute, all right? And uh, we'll just begin reading, if you would, in verse number 43 of chapter 14, and we'll go down to verse number 52. And immediately while he spake came Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and scribes and elders and he that betrayed him had given him a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid hold their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You took me not, but the scripture must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Let's pray together if we could. Father, we ask you to add your blessing again to the reading of the word of God. Lord, give us the eyes to see what we cannot see. Give us ears to hear what we cannot hear. Lord, give us obedient hands and feet to apply the word of God to us this morning. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in us and through us this morning that only you can do. And I pray, Father, that the people of God would be fed through the word of God. And we'll praise you for your mercy in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I think it would be important for us to start off our text this morning addressing the end of the passage we read than going to the beginning. I think we need to address the naked guy running through the street first, okay? Because I don't want you spending the whole service going, what's with the naked guy running through the street, you know? And then I run out of time and you're like, what is that? Well, it's kind of like watching a, a football game. You never know what's going to run across the field. Well, there, there it is. You just you get all kinds of things in Scripture as well. Um, but what, what are we seeing here in this passage of Scripture? The Bible tells us just a very brief summary of this. Uh, here he is. He has a linen cloth. Uh, the idea would be almost like a night robe. 
or a, uh, a robe, a, a robe that you would put on. Uh, I don't know if anybody even uses robes anymore. I think that's just something you put on the TV. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it, it, people wear their pajamas to, to uh, Walmart now, so it's like not a big deal, I guess. So, um, but the fact is that they would have put on this robe. It would have been something lightweight, something that would have been uh, easy to grab and throw around you. And that's what this young man would have been wearing. Um, and so the question would, who is this young man? Why is it included? And we can speculate all day, and, and we take some historical narrative and put it together, and this is where I kind of land on it. Um, and what we land on is I believe this is probably a personal narrative by John Mark himself. As Mark is writing this account, he's telling what he sees happen, and I believe he's writing about himself. That John Mark, and history would tell us that uh, his family had a home in Jerusalem, and it's possible that even the Last Supper was held in the upper room of their home. And uh, it could even be that Judas came to that home to find Jesus first and then went to the garden to find him afterwards because he knew where he was and maybe they had passed by. Nonetheless, this young man is stirred by the commotion that is going on, comes out to see what's happening and sees Jesus being led through the streets, follows along curiously they grab him and say, hey, if you're going to partner with this guy, we're taking you into custody as well. And like Joseph, he leaves the linen garment in their hand and runs for fear. So we see this young man showing up for curiosity, running for fear. And I believe it's John Mark. I think John Mark, like John the Apostle, when he writes, he never includes his name. He just says the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he talks about that in the third person kind of way. And I think John's doing the same thing and maybe even including himself in a small way with the betrayal that the apostles perpetrated as well. Of saying, hey, I was there. I saw it. I could have stood with him, but I too fled and I ran. And he came in curiosity. He fled in fear. Now, again, we're not told that it's John Mark here. And so what do we do when we have a passage of scripture that is not completely clear? Well, we major on the major and we minor on the minor. Or we keep the main things, the main things, and the main things, the plain things of Scripture. And so we're going to stop speculating on this this morning, and we're going to go to the plain things of the text now. And so we see Jesus coming out of the garden. What do we find? And by the way, if you want to go home and Google that, feel free to do. And if you find a better explanation, send me an email, all right? Um, I'm happy to read it, as many of you know that you're good at sending notes to correct my sermons. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Those are always appreciated, sort of. So no, no, I appreciate it very much. Um, so the and and so we look at Mark and we see Mark telling the narrative, and we told you early on that the Mark writes with this speed, right? He's straightway, or the word would be anon, and he is just giving us this happened and then this happened and then this happened and straightway they did this and straightway they did that. And then we get uh, later on in the text in chapter 12, and he kind of slows back a little bit, and we begin to lay out a little bit of a narrative, and it slows down just a bit. And now we hit this passage of Scripture, and man, he hits the gas. Now we're going to start flying through the events of the crucifixion night, and we're going to go through the cross in the next chapter, and then we're at the resurrection, and now uh, it's, it's a new covenant, and everything's in play, and he moves very fast. And here we come, Jesus coming out of the garden. The whole tenor of our Lord has changed. 
the whole picture here. He Remember, he went into the garden sorrowful, very heavy, and now he's coming out of the garden, and we see in verse number 42, rise up, let us go, lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. It's time to go. And Jesus is not walking away from the betrayal. He's walking into it. He's coming to where they are. He goes to meet them and saying, here we are. And he confronts what is going on. He's prepared to face the hour that is before him. He is prepared to take the cup that his father has handed him. He said, let us go. I think of Hebrews chapter number 12 when I read this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He went through the cross on purpose, not an accident, and immediately he steps out. Look in verse number 43, and we read it already together, and immediately while yet spake. Immediately Judas shows up. Let's look at the company that comes. This group of people that come to take Jesus by force. First off, we see in the lead of this company, Judas, one of the 12, one that had walked with the Lord. He comes to betray him. He's seen the miracles of the Lord. He's seen Jesus feed 5,000. He sat with him on the mount and heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. He listened to him as he taught about the resurrection. He saw Lazarus come out of the grave. He witnessed all of these mites, and yet now he who had witnessed all of this betrays the Lord. He goes to them and agrees for 30 pieces of silver and tells them where he can be found and then leads them, and in the night hour he says, I'll go and I'll kiss him on the cheek, and the one that I kiss, you grab him and hold him tight. And we can only imagine the grief that we see after the fact that Judas is faced with. When in Matthew 27 and 4, he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Can you imagine the weight that must have sat upon him? Let me remind you that much hypocrisy that is unconscious precedes the deliberate and the conscious. You see, it's what's going on in our heart that is going to produce what happens with our hands. And if we are unconsciously hypocritical in our own heart, or we're hiddenly hypocritical in our heart, we will be hypocritical in our actions. We will betray him in our actions if we're betraying him in our heart. Sin has a way of developing a justification process in our minds, in our argument of like, this is okay, this is fine, you deserve this. And then the moment we transgress, the same voice that was encouraging us to sin is the voice that then comes along and says, and why did you do that? I can't believe you did that. I mean, in, in, in a very mundane way, but yet still something we ought to challenge us. It's kind of like going back and getting that second cup of ice cream. You know, I mean, you've already had one, and you know that's enough. But, I mean, I could handle another one. And then after you finish that one, that was good. But you're like, it, why did I do that? Now i got to write that down on my calorie counter, and I'm going to be over. And so then you just don't write it down so, so you feel better about it. So. The, the fact is, we, we, we condemn ourselves. And here is no different, right? Judas feels the condemnation of his sin. He goes back to the Sanhedrin where he betrayed the Lord. He cast the money in front of them. And they, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? Those who had encouraged his betrayal, his own heart that he encouraged betrayal, now abandons him. And the Bible tells us that he went out and he hung himself. What a grief. Judas standing before the Lord, having seen all of that and betrays him. Now we see a great multitude. 
The Bible tells us here that a great multitude came to him, and we can imagine what this picture must have looked like. Uh, we, we see probably some temple guards that would have been Jewish uh, and leaders in that regard. We see servants of the high priest, servants of scribes, and these men that are coming to do so, and then probably also a Roman attachment that would have been led with him to go to this group, and they would have been coming with swords and with clubs and, and lanterns and torches, the Bible tells us. And any of the details that aren't included in Mark, I'm drawing from the other accounts. You can go and read that later. But we see this great multitude showing up. Now, let, me, let me make something clear here and put this in perspective. The majority is not always right. And by the way, the minority is not always right. Just because a few people think it's right or a bunch of people think it's right doesn't make it right. Truth doesn't change with who agrees with it. And just because you're con you convince a large number to agree with your cause doesn't change the truth of your cause. And just because you stand alone or in a small number doesn't mean that you're right or wrong. Truth is fixed. Truth is objective, not subjective. It doesn't change with the winds of time. It doesn't change with culture. Truth is truth regardless of the number for it or against it. And let me just challenge us Christians as we walk into a culture that is less and less willing to hear truth and receive objective truth. Let's make sure we are not living a life by a pole. But let's pick our ground and stand upon the truth of the word of God and stand, and by the way, live in agreement with that truth as well and let the world get bent. Because we can't change truth to accommodate anyone. And here this crowd had come, and the apostles, who when they were in their small group a little while ago, we will stand with you, Lord, but now in the great multitude, they changed their tune. And it was very easy for us to feel that pressure. Now, by the way, this crowd that had come to take the Lord, why did you not take him in the temple? Well, they were afraid of the bigger crowd. They were afraid of the people that would have come and done them harm if they had laid hands upon Jesus. So do right, even in the midst of unpopular things. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You know, that guilty conscience causes us to run. We see not only this crowd that comes, but I want you to see the display of power that they showed. Swords, staves, lanterns, torches, weapons, and the picture I get in my mind is the group of people gathered to charge the beast's castle in Beauty and the Beast. You know, this whole group of people getting together and somebody's stirring them up and let's go get him. You know, let's take him down. And they're coming in with this force and they're in this fevered pitch going after him. This display of power though, this brought no fear to the Lord. We don't see him like, oh no, they're coming with sticks and swords. I mean, if they hadn't have brought the swords, I think we could have taken them. No, Jesus walks into this. He doesn't walk away from it. He said, rise up, let's go. My betrayer is at hand. Let's go to him. You see, swords and soldiers could not do the will of their own will apart from the will of the Lord. And by the way, Peter is going to swing a sword very shortly, and he can't do good with his sword apart from the will of God. It is not force that brings these things to pass. Judas had warned them. He said, take him away. Lay, lay hold on him. Keep him safe. The idea here is to seize him and not let him go. Put, put him in bonds. Get a hold of him. Judas had seen him avoid the crowds on more than one occasion. 
early in ministry, we see him being led to the precipice of the cliff, and they're going to throw him off the cliff, and Jesus passes through the midst of them. And, and I, I've often wondered what that would have looked like, whether he just disappeared and, you know, beam me up Scotty kind of thing, and he went out away. Or maybe uh, in another occasion, the Bible tells us that he was uh, there in the midst of them, and they went to stir up a stoning, and he leaves on the other side and slips out the back and avoids it. And no doubt Judas had seen his power and knew that if he wanted to escape, he could. And he knew the power of the Lord. And yet he says to them, hey, make sure you hold him fast when you grab him. Don't let him go. You know, and I have to ask the question, why such force for such a gentle man? The Bible tells us of our Lord when it's prophesied of him that a smoking flax uh, he will not, or rather a bruised reed he will not uh, crush. And a smoking flax he will not crush. And so a bruised reed he will not break. The idea of a reed is a, a very tender plant in the first place, but it's bruised at some point, and just a push would knock it over. And he said, our Lord would come so gently that even a bruised reed he wouldn't break, and a smoking flax is just the little embers of a smoking, uh, of a start of a fire that could be easily quenched with just pressing it down, that even our Lord in that he wouldn't put out that fire. He would walk gently among the men. And we see him walking gently, being the good shepherd, laying down his life for the sheep. And yet these men come with force and they're going to take him and put him in chains and lead him away. We see the actions of this company unfold. Judas betrays him with a kiss. It's interesting to see this, this kiss is the show of affection and love, and no doubt it is to say, I know you and I trust you, and, and, and I think we all, especially in our society today, we're very uh, selective on who we would place a kiss upon. And, you know, and I, but this, the Bible says that he comes in and he kisses him, and the term here is that he kissed and he profusely kissed him. He kissed him and kissed him again, and, and I, I picture uh, the Italians, you know, and the mwah, 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 you know, it's a back and forth, and he's greeting him with this bold kissing and placing the kisses upon his cheek. There's something very tender and affectionate in that kind of a greeting, and a, and a greeting that says, I love you, and I trust you, and I would bring you in close. And here, this, this Judas comes to him, and he grabs him, and he places the kiss upon him, and kisses him several times, and he greets him, master. Master, what discord is in that phrase? Here the one who is betraying him uh, is now crying out, Master, let me say this, he is not his servant. He is not willingly his servant. Psalms 41.9 tells us David writes of his own betrayal, and I think is prophesying of our Lord's betrayal at the same time, when he says, yea, mine own friend, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And here Judas is betrayed, or Jesus rather is betrayed by Judas, the one who walked with him. We see Judas, his kiss of betrayal. We see the crowd of soldiers that laid their hands on him. Oh, was there not a show of power by these men? Can you imagine creation laying hold of the creator? putting their hands on him. And on several occasions in this text, we're told that they put their hands on him to grab a hold of him. And this picture of seizing him and holding him fast. But I love John's account of this. John gives us a little window into it, a little nuance that the other accounts don't. Judas is coming to betray him, and Jesus is going out to meet them, and they stop, and they, art thou Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, I am. 
And when he says the words, I am, the whole crowd of men fall over backwards. I heard one commentator not wanting to attribute any kind of supernatural power says to them, well, in that occasion, one of the guys lost his balance and it was just kind of a domino effect back. That's a bit of a stretch. 120 people. I mean, I've seen clumsy people, but that's a bit of a stretch. No, I don't believe that for a minute. I believe that when he stood up and he spoke, I am, and he says it three times in that one text, I am, I am, I am. And he stands there before them declaring who he is. I believe all the swords that were coming at him, showing their power, showing their might, their torches and their clubs were coming at him. And Jesus, just for a moment, pulls the sword out and just gives them a little picture of who he is. I am. And they all fell over backwards. Peter had swung his sword, remember? And Jesus rebukes him and he said, I could presently call 12 legions of angels and they would come and destroy this world and set me free. In a moment he could have done it. There was no lack of power in this moment. They laid their hands on him and took him. The disciple Peter pulls the sword and lops off the ear. So what are we to conclude about Peter's swordmanship here? Either he was really good or really bad. He's really good because he aimed for the ear and that's all he got. Or he's really bad, he aimed for the head and he got an ear. I tend to think it was the last one. I think he was shooting for the head and he got an ear. He was a fisherman, by the way. And so I think he was aiming for the head and he missed and got an ear. And of course we see the picture. Our text doesn't tell us this part. It just says the guy got his ear cut off. I'm glad we have the filler, the other text to give us the other perspective because then Jesus reaches down and heals the man's ear. Can you imagine the guy walking around the rest of his life? I mean, every time he put on his glasses, he'd be like, man, I sure am glad he did that, you know. Fix my ear. And the Lord healed that ear and this man now is healed by what Christ had done and had to walk with that. And Peter, of course, is rebuked. Put your sword away. Simon was either really good, as we said, or really bad. Jesus tells us of the healing in the other text, and we see the answer of our Lord in this moment. It's almost as if he's looking at this crowd saying, your swords cannot take me. I will not fight you. You see, opportunity and strategy did not make his capture possible. It wasn't men's strategy that made this hour possible. But Jesus had accepted the will of the Father and was walking into this hour. And he tells us here, and we, I've underlined it in my Bible, and I would encourage you to note it in yours. In verse number 49 of our text, he said, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus understood that he was walking through Scripture here, that he was fulfilling Scripture as he went to the cross, and the apostles couldn't see it. Peter didn't understand it. He pulls his sword and begins to fight him, and then when Jesus rebukes him, he, they all go away and leave him alone and forsaken now. Peter didn't get it, but we're going to fast forward just 40 days under the day of Pentecost, and Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and begins to preach, and he says, uh, Jesus who is both Lord and Christ, who God determined by the, the, the forecounsel of God to be crucified and suffer for your sakes. He said he was crucified on purpose by God's foreknowledge and God's plan. It wasn't something that happened by chance. It was on purpose that God had led him through this cross. This was all God's plan, all God's purpose, all the time. 
Jesus was not taken by force. No man takes my life. I lay it down. And mark in your minds this morning, Jesus was not a martyr. He did not die unwillingly. He was the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He died in your place and he died in my place. He suffered for the sins of Peter's betrayal. He suffered for the sins of the men who nailed him on the cross. And he suffered for our sins in that hour. He laid down his life for us. Willingly. The eleven forsake him. Just as he said they would. He knows our frailty. He knew theirs. He knows ours very well. And the warnings of Scripture, the admonitions of Scripture, and, and, I, and I hope you hear me, every young person, every adult here this morning, there is no admonition of Scripture that is there just to put you in boundaries and to frustrate you. But every one of them are to warn you for the wickedness in your heart because God knows what is best. Pray lest you enter into temptation. Pray lest you enter into temptation. So what can we draw from this this morning? As we look at this text and we make some applications, and I'm sure there are others that could be made, let me just say these few. You may know him and not know him. Now that's a heavy thought to me. When I consider the fact that Judas kissed the door of heaven but has been spending eternity in hell. That is a very heavy thought to my heart. That he knew him. He witnessed his works. He went with apostles on missions trips and traveled around doing the work that God had sent them to do. Remember, he sent them out two by two. And yet Judas stood there and placed his lips upon the face of the king of kings and denied him. The thief on the cross only knew him for a few moments. And yet because of faith in his work alone, that thief is enjoying eternity with Christ. What a contrast. He who saw him understood his ministry for what he could see with his eyes missed it all. You see, not all who call him master are truly his servants. Whose servant are we? Well, Romans chapter number 6 tells us that I am the servant of who I obey. That's whose servant I am. Who am I obeying? That's whose servant I belong to. And, And listen to me well this morning. I am not saying that we become his because of how we serve, but one of the evidence that we are his is that we serve him. Is that I belong to him. He is my Lord and so therefore I obey him. And that is an evidence of the fact that I have been born again. That there is a new nature within me because of the work of Jesus Christ. His work is effectual in our lives. Oh, we fail him, do we not? He's faithful. Matthew 7, 22 is probably one of the most sobering verses in all the Bible. And I think it's more sobering for church people than it is for anyone else. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not many mighty works in your name? He will say, depart from me, you cursed into iniquity, I never knew you. And here's the case, and listen to me well, he did not say, I knew you and forgot you. He said, I never knew you. 
I believe when we are children of God, we are sealed under the day of redemption. We are kept by the love of Christ. The question this morning is not do you know about him, but do you know him? Better yet, does he know you? When you stand before the Lord, if you're talking about what you've done, you don't know him. When we come to the Lord in confession and we're making promises about what we will do, we're evidencing we don't know him. When I come in confession, it's not about what I'm going to do. It's about what he's already done to cleanse me and to wash my sins. And I'm coming, falling humbly before him. So there's a warning here for all of us. Do we know him? Does he know us? Are we in the faith? I don't say that this morning to cause you to doubt, but I cause you to examine your heart. To say, if you think for one moment that something you are doing has merited you heaven, that some way you are living is earning you a standing before God, then this morning, put that aside, cast that away as self-righteousness and ungodly behavior, and fall humbly before the King of Kings, acknowledging that there's nothing you can do. And the songwriter said it better than we could ever say it again. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There is no other place to go. There is no other place. When we stand before God, I'll not stand there one day and say, well, you know, I grew up in a preacher's home. Or, hey, I, I was a pastor myself for so many years. Or, man, I had so many people accept Christ under my ministry. None of that will matter when I stand before him because I will not stand before him with any righteousness of my own. I will stand before him condemned before a holy God and every mouth will be stopped. And the only thing that you and I will be able to claim in that hour is Christ. Christ and Christ alone. Put nothing before that. Nothing before it. One of the grieves of my soul is that someone could sit in this room under the preaching of the word of God for year after year after year and spend eternity in a Christless hell. May it not be so, church. So Judas stood there kissing the door of heaven and walking away. Let me say next this morning, no power or sword for or against him will accomplish God's plan or alter God's plan. It is not our power that is going to accomplish his plan. You see, the will of God is accomplished by the power of God, not by the power of man. Now, I'm for organizing, I'm for planning, and I think we have a responsibility to do with what we have. But let's make no mistake, if last year taught us anything, all of our planning doesn't matter. Because you can plan, you can organize, you can design budgets, you can do all of that. But unless the Spirit of the Lord come down, it's all in vain. And by the way, I'm not interested in asking God to help me with what I'm doing. I'm interested in getting in on what he's doing already. God, what are you doing and where do you want us? And when we make our plans, we say often around here, when we're writing a schedule, and I want to say it over and over again, every budget, every business meeting, every schedule we put together, every event we organize, Lord, if this is not your will, you defeat our plans and accomplish yours. And Lord, show us what your plans are. Get our hearts in line with you. Whose will is accomplished ultimately is God's will is accomplished. You see, this is God's sovereign plan. Now let me say this, and I think as we witness the gospel to our friends and our neighbors, the cause of Christ 
does not need a sharpened sword any more than it needs a sharpened tongue. Let us speak always with grace. Have our speech always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how we ought to answer every man. Let's answer every man in meekness and a spirit of humility. The truth doesn't get threatened. The truth is. And we can stand boldly on the truth and proclaim it. So, just because the hour is dark, just because it seems like things aren't going well, I think the observation we have to make from this text is God has never lost control. And I think we can look in the culture around us and the world at large, and I think we as conservative Christians are often very capable of doing it. We almost want to see the rapture as an escape hatch. Somebody please pull the ripcord so we can get out of here. God placed us here for this hour, for this time, to do his work, not to escape it. Now I say with you, even so come Lord Jesus. In your time, in your place, but until the trumpet sounds, until his time for calling us home comes, we have a work to do. And so though it seems dark around us, let's not hang our heads in discouragement for God's still doing a work. Adam, you sinned in the garden. It's pretty dark right now. I mean, the whole of humanity is plunged into sin because of your act. Adam, where art thou? Aren't you glad he called Adam? Oh, I'm so glad he called him. You see, because even in the darkness, God was still in control. Moses, you're surrounded. The Red Sea's in front of you. What will you do? The wind starts blowing. God's still in control. Joshua, Moses has died. What are you going to do? He's going to take off his sandals and he's going to kneel before the captain of the Lord of hosts because God's still in control. We can look around us and we can see this hour and this text and it seems dark, but we know because we've already read ahead that in just three short days, the grave will open. Jesus is triumphant. We need not fear. We need not worry. We don't have to forsake him either. When we forsake him though, we do reveal our lack of faith. We reveal how little we know him, and often it seems like that we forsake him the most when the moments of pain come. See, God sends trials to shape us and to form us to the image of his son. And it's almost as if when the trial comes and the pain begins to press in on us, that we look at God and say, God, why are you sending me through this trial as if I need to learn anything? Why would you do this? I mean, Lord, I've already learned all this. And yet, in pride, we miss the point of what God is trying to teach us. Do we really feel that we're finished products? Oh. The song we sang as kids, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. He's still conforming me to the image of his son, and he uses these moments. You know, and I think of the song... We sing it here, or I quote it to you often time, we are prone to wonder. But I'm, I'm glad to say this morning that when we forsake him, he still does not forsake us. Aren't you glad that he is still waiting as the father of the prodigal son was on the porch when he looked down the river? And I, I, I wrote, and I love that picture. The Bible says when he was yet a great way off, 
He hadn't even got home yet. And his father left the porch and he ran to where he was and he welcomed him in. And I'm so glad that God can use broken people again. And we see Peter who denied the Lord, all the apostles who denied the Lord. And yet these men, through the power of the Spirit of God, the power of the resurrected Lord that was unleashed on the earth, all 11 of those men went across the world and 10 of them were martyred for their faith. And laid down their life, not for a fairy tale, but something they were convinced in their soul was truth because they had seen the Lord resurrected. They were filled with the Spirit of God and they went preaching it. Even John himself was boiled in oil, exiled to Patmos. These men were not messing around. The same men who fled are now bold. And the difference is the power of the resurrected Lord in their lives God takes brokenness and he makes it whole. I, saw, I love the tenderness of the Lord here. Peter, in the boat, after his denial, after the resurrected Lord, he looks at the guys and he goes, you know what, I'm just overwhelmed, I'm going fishing. And I don't think that was a decree that he was just taking the weekend off to go fish. I think he was going back to his profession. I'm going to get my boat back, and I'm going to go back to work with Dad, and we're going to fish. He's returning back out fishing, and he and John are on the boat, and you know the story, but I love the timing of it that John lays out for us. They're out there in the boat, and early in the morning after they had toiled all night, they see someone on the shore, and he says, hey, do you have any fish? And they said, no. He said, throw the net on the other side. And I kind of picture Peter and John kind of going, we've heard that somewhere. So they throw the net on the other side and they pull in the great draw. And as they're pulling it in, they look at one another and say, it's the Lord. They swim to shore. The Bible says Peter dove into the water and swam. They get there and Peter and Jesus are walking on the shore. Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Yea, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Yea, Lord, you know I love thee. Feed my sheep. Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Feed my lambs. And gently and patiently the Lord called him back to him. Isn't it interesting that Peter denied him three times and the Lord allows him to confess him three times? Just an interesting parallel. He calls him to him. The songwriter said it, though I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the sufficiency of it. Lord, we ask you, Father, that you would drive the truth home to our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would not just be stirred, but that your word would affect a change in our lives. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen.